You can turn to Isaiah chapter 59. We learned in the last several months from Malachi, specifically Malachi 4, we learned that the righteous judgment of God is coming for those who love evil and who don't love God, who don't fear God, who don't love Jesus. And we also learned that the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings and Christians are going to jump what, you guys remember from last week, what are Christians gonna jump around like? Like, like happy cows, right? Christians are gonna jump around like calves bursting forth out of their stalls in the spring, jumping around. We watched that funny video of the cow last week jumping around. Uh, but it illustrated this joy and satisfaction, uh, that, that Christians have, uh, because of Christ, because of what God has done. And it also talks there about how this, like, like the sunrise lifts the weight of a dark night, so the Son of God coming uh, will fully and finally break the bondage of sin, and we look forward to that. We look back to what Christ has already done. And Malachi preached to Israel and Judah at a time when, when things were not going very well for them. Certainly in their own estimation, they're looking around and seeing that. And so Israel needed correction. They needed, they needed some, uh, hope. And Malachi, through the Spirit of God, preached that to them. Isaiah preached very similar themes to Malachi, uh, a lot earlier than Malachi did. And so as we read this, you're gonna see there's, there's violence in the streets along the highways, he says. There's poverty in, in, in the area everywhere. Uh, peace is nowhere to be found. And it looks like, there's just like this this core breakdown of the fabric of society in general almost. If you listen to some of the things that are that are said, there's a lot going on here and it, it's it's hard to find anything very positive. No doubt, this is what Isaiah's writing to Israel in is one of the the darkest moments of their history. And yet, in the darkness a great light shines. That's what he says in chapter 9, which is kind of a, a an advent passage that you might read. Into the darkness of Israel's experience, Isaiah showcases the brilliance of hope, of light. And so here's what we're going to see in this. Hard and dark times in our lives often reveal that our hope is misplaced. When the dark times come in, it reveals in ways that maybe we wouldn't like, it reveals that our hope is placed in lesser things. It's misplaced. The idea of hope is something that stirs within, I think, the heart of every human being because every human being is made in the image of God who is their creator. Uh, I, I really think, though, that we just kind of understand this. Just look at the movies that are produced and made and how hope is connected to the movies that we make. Um, even Even ungodly movies latch on to this idea of hope oftentimes. So it's this idea of where if you follow, you know, as you follow the main character of a movie, or maybe it's a novel, if you follow this main character around, our hearts swell with hope when good things happen, right? The long-lost family member is found, or whatever the case is. You know, we get tied into it, and we're like, yes, this is good. We're happy for this. This is great. I've been looking forward to this. But then the opposite is true. 
when a loved one dies in a movie or a book or something, when the, the job goes to somebody else, when the kids leave, whatever it is, hope seems to be crushed, right? Hearts are broken, and we get that. We're, we're familiar with those kinds of feelings as people. And I think hope is kind of intertwined in our very beings almost. Some of our happiest moments are moments of, of hope fulfilled. And some of our, our lowest, saddest moments are moments of hope crushed. Paul Tripp says that we're always attaching the hope of our heart to something. I agree. We're always attaching the hope of our heart to something. And here's where many, if not most of us, get disappointed because we tend to attach our hope to things that were never designed to give us true hope. Our career, never designed to bring us true hope. We were never supposed to find our hope in our appearances. The things that we own, you know, deep down, it doesn't bring you real joy or hope. Even our family, who we love and are called to care for well, even they can't bring us real hope. Why? Why is that? Well, because our family in particular, our family is full of people who sin just like you and I do. They can't be our ultimate hope. Now, some of these things give us what maybe we would call glimmers of hope, certainly, but they were never supposed to be our hope. We're not supposed to put our hope fully in these things. So when life is hard, when life is difficult, when we might think that it's dark, here's the question. Where do you look for hope? And I I know you could very easily say, well, I look to God. Okay, that's the right answer, but do you really? Think about that. Think about the last time you were really disappointed. What did you turn to? Because our, our culture turns to all kinds of other things but Jesus, right? Addictions galore. We turn to all kinds of other things that we think are going to bring us hope, that are going to fulfill our need, but none of those things were designed to give us real hope. So when we're facing these things, maybe it's unexpected sickness or whatever it might be, where do you go? Where do you go for hope, for comfort, for security? What are you attaching your hope to when life is hard? The dark, the dark times have a way of showing us the truth. We don't like it, but it shows us the truth. And that was certainly true for Israel. So Isaiah 59 may not be a typical Christmas Advent sermon. I've certainly never preached it before. But I think it beautifully illustrates where hope should be found. So let's read through this chapter together and then pray. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their egg dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. 
Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and righteous uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlines he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a, like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in, in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we can certainly draw some similarities in our culture today to what Isaiah was referring to. We're not that far off. We're not that different. And Lord, certainly the the first three quarters of this passage is just hard. It's dark. It's a revelation of the sin of the heart of lost mankind. And if we're real honest, Lord, it reflects my heart, our hearts. And so when you come, in the end, you do something about it. And Lord, may we see what you do and glory in it and give you glory for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I'm not... I'm not sure if you noticed, but in the first part of this chapter, it sounds pretty similar to what we talked about in Second Peter. 
And it sounds pretty similar to what we talked about in Malachi. In Peter's day, here's the question that was asking. Maybe you remember this. They said, where's the promise of his coming? Remember? And they say, from the Father's days on, nothing has changed. Where's the promise of his coming? In Malachi's day, the question of it was, where's the God of justice? Right? They don't, they don't see him for who he is, for what he is. Isaiah 59 verse 1 seems to be a response to the question of Isaiah's day of where is God? Why doesn't he hear us? Why isn't he stepping in to give us the life that we expected? Why is it like it is? What unfortunately plays out then is that when God's people doubt him, they fail to find their hope in him. And then they look for it anywhere else. And that's what we see. Because if you're convinced that God is untrustworthy, or if you're convinced that he's not there, if he's absent, you quit going to him in your time of need. You quit running to him. Instead, and I I think here's the danger that we've already mentioned, instead, you're going to attach your hope, as Paul Tripp said, you're going to attach your hope to other things, to lesser things. Verse 1 reminds the reader that God still saves and God still hears though. Look at, look back at verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. So this is maybe an assumption that they've drawn or something that they're verbally saying. God can never save us. He can never rescue us. Where is he? Is he even here? And Isaiah's response is this. The Lord is, his hand is not shortened. He can still save. So what's the problem? If God is still present and God can still save, if his ear is not so dull that he cannot hear, then what's the problem? Look at verse 1. Three-letter word, sin. That's, that's the problem. Sin is the problem. Not God's sin, obviously, the people's sin. That's why God seems so distant. That's why God maybe seems uncaring. It's because of their sin. He calls it their iniquity It's made a separation between them and God. Remember what God said clearly in Malachi. He said, I, the Lord, do not change. So here's the second blank on your notes this week. It's that God isn't distant, but our sin makes it seem that way. Just like if you flip that, those binoculars around. And God's supposed to be right next to us, and you flip that around in our sin, and we say, why is God so far away? And we get this this distorted view of the truth, of reality, because of sin. And we know why. I know I'm preaching to the choir here to some degree. We know why it's easier to take that route, to have that perspective. Because it's, it's so much easier to just pass the buck to somebody else, right? It's easy to just blame someone that they're the problem, certainly the problem is not within me. And so we often say things like, man, if our government wasn't so corrupt, or if my boss would just listen to me, or, you know, if my spouse would just change this about them. None of you have ever said any of those things, I know. But I think it's easy to miss the link between those kinds of comments and what's going on with Israel and what's going on in our own hearts. And the link is people. Okay, so let let me explain. The link is people. The government are people that we've elected. 
Now, it may not be the person that you wanted to elect, but it's, it's the, the people that we elected. And sin blinds those people to the truth of God. And so the institution isn't really the problem, is it? It's people. Take your workplace, for instance. Your workplace is made up of coworkers and bosses and uh, sometimes... Sin blinds them to the truth of who God is. And so the problem isn't your job, it's the people there. Marriage is the same way. Uh, marriage gets a bad rap sometimes. People say, well, I'm in a bad marriage. No, you're not in a bad marriage. It's just there are bad people in the marriage doing bad things. Right? So people, our hearts, that's really where the problem is. We are the problem. And so these, these honestly, those three in particular are, are God-ordained institutions in our culture, right? They're not evil, but the people involved in them sometimes pervert what God has done and make it seem that way. But this is why finding a new job doesn't actually make you happy in the end. Because guess where you go to work? With other people. Different people, but it won't take long, and those people may start to rub you the wrong way too. This is also why you can't find hope By running to a new marriage every time you don't feel in love or every time they do something that you don't think that they should. The greatest problem is not in another person, it's inside of you. It's inside of me. And if you look at verses 3, really through 13, we're not going to go through these as as slowly as we normally would, but if you look, glance through some of those things, this is a sad description of that fact that that's where the problem really lies let me just point out a couple of these things early on it says that their hands listen to how it's described their hands are defiled with blood their fingers with iniquity their lips have spoken lies their tongue mutters wickedness look at verse 7 it says that their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity the things that they thought The things that they spoke with their mouths, the things that they did, the actions, they were all corrupted and driven by sin, is what Isaiah is saying here. And because of this, look at verse 9. Justice is far from us. Because there's wickedness just running rampant. Justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, right? There's that word hope. We hope for it. There's some part of us that wants it. But all we get is darkness. We hope for brightness, for light, but we walk in gloom, he says. What a horrible thought. Look at verse 10 and 11. These are, they're really just a picture of people that have, have completely lost their way. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we're like dead men. We, we growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it's far from us. The people that are being described here are so blind to and out of touch with reality that they have to follow their hand along the wall. Have you ever been in a dark room where you don't have a flashlight or any kind of light? And maybe you know the shape of the room so you can kind of follow the wall in our rooms, there's handprints on the wall trying to find that light switch, you know. But you you walk and you you kind of you don't see what's ha- you can't see, so you're groping. That's the word that's used here. 
It's an accurate word. Can we see this in our culture now? People are just, we're just groping for some sense of truth, but twisting it, wanting our, our own way. That's what's happening here. We grope for it like, like we're blind, Isaiah says. Justice and salvation are far away. Now, I've noticed something in my own life, but also with kids and in ministry for a long time. I've noticed that when someone is presented with their sin, they usually have one of two responses. And you're going to know this right off the bat. The first and probably more common one is that they deflect or they blame. Not themselves, but others. And we see this in marriage. Well, I wouldn't do this if they wouldn't do that. We see this within siblings as well. I wouldn't treat them this way if they treated me better. Okay, and, and so we deflect. It's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. That's the, that's the general response. Occasionally, other times, we see confession. Right? person is confronted with their sin, and they confess it back, and they say, you're right. I was wrong. Now, that's hard. I'm not going to ask you married couples how often you've said that to one another. But I imagine it's not as often as we should. We say, I'm, I'm, I'm right. That's what we usually say. You're wrong. And then we dig our heels in and we double down. And so what we usually see is a finger pointed in accusation. But what we need to see is a finger pointed in confession. Look at verses 12 and 13. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord. Turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. So on behalf of the people, Isaiah confesses that they are the problem. Our sin is before us, he said. We see it. Okay. We're not blaming anybody else anymore. We see it. The fault lies here. There's something deeply spiritual, almost ironic, that happens when you admit that you're the problem. When I admit that I'm the problem. When that happens, when I realize that that anywhere else that I run, I'm still going to get to people who are messed up like me. I can't get away from this because the problem is here. When When I finally realize that, Something changes. Something clicks, if you will. When, by God's grace, I see that I don't have the power or the ability to fix the situation, that hopelessness actually becomes the pathway to real hope. When you've lost hope in yourself and everything else, that's when we actually see where real hope comes from. I think that's what Isaiah is getting at. We have to give up on every other horizontal hope of my own effort, of my spouse fulfilling me, of my kids or my job or my stuff. We have to give up all of those hopes, those horizontal hopes, in order to see and receive the vertical hope from from heaven, right? We need to abandon these kinds of things. Now, what I'm going to say kind of sounds weird, but stick with me. I think some of us need to abandon hope. Okay, I I think some of us need to abandon hope in meeting another person who perfectly completes you. Right, this is what Hollywood portrays marriage as. 
And if you've been married for like 10 minutes, you realize it's not probably true. (laughs) Nobody perfectly completes you. Give up hope in that. Give up hope that your job is going to make your life worth living. Give up hope that what you own or what you get, what you can purchase, is going to really satisfy your soul. Give up hope in that kind of stuff. Those things won't ever do what you want them to do. They weren't designed to do those things. So give up hope in those kinds of situations. Because in our hopelessness in those things, real hope is born. Look at verse 16. This is in reference to the Lord. It says, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. It says that there was no one to execute justice properly here and no one to intercede on behalf of a sinful people. And so God injects the biggest and most perfect dose of hope possible himself in the middle of the injustice the violence the oppression the lies the lawlessness god says he is personally going to do something about this it says his own arm brought him salvation real hope was going to come and it would come in the person of his son jesus that's hope so when we when we abandon hope in the horizontal things, that's when we can see, we flip the binoculars around, and we all of a sudden see God is very near to us, and we hope in Christ. Guys, that is Christmas, right? Hope has hands. The Christmas story is about hope coming to those who desperately need it. It's why the wise men came from afar. It's why the angels sang choruses of praise. It's why the shepherds could hardly believe what they were hearing in those fields. Hope had taken on flesh and was born among them. They're saying, really? The promised Messiah could really be born in our lifetime now? They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that hope was born in a Bethlehem manger. But it was true. The promised hope spoken of by Isaiah, if you'll notice in verse 17 through 21, are going to bring two things with him. And this is important. The promised hope would bring two things in particular. The first thing in verse 17, 18, and 19 is justice. Is that not Malachi? (laughs) God's coming in justice. And the second thing in verse 20 and 21, this promised hope is coming with redemption. This describes a holy God who will deal with injustice. He's going to punish wrong. Uh, Let me say it another way. You wouldn't want the person ruling the world to be indifferent or incapable of dealing with sin properly. Okay? And when when we think God will overlook, oh, it's not a big deal. I'll just do, I'll just give more in the offering plate next week and it'll make up for it. Whatever, whatever our rationalization is, when we start to think that we can put God in that box and say, well, it's not a big deal to him. And all of a sudden we don't fear the Lord as we ought. And we're not viewing him as scripture would describe him. He needs, the person who's ruling the world needs to be capable of punishing wrong. 
God's anger towards sin and his commitments to justice assures us that we will not, or that he will not rest until all sin is dealt with properly, fully and completely. God is righteous and perfect judge is going to do that. Sin will be defeated forever. And that day is coming. A day is coming when sin will be no more. The things that were described at the first part of chapter 59, where he's talking about bloodshed, iniquity in the thoughts and hearts of men, being swift to do evil, all of these things, sickness, death, sin, all of these things will forever be defeated because God is a just God. Praise the Lord for his, his righteousness. We ought, even though that means punishment for wrong and those who do it, that's who God needs to be. We need him to be that. So this hope speaks of being armed with just more than just justice, although that is half of the equation here. It's good that he is, but there's also the softer aspect that he comes, this hope comes with redemption. Look at verse 20. And a redeemer, probably in your version, it's redeemer is capitalized, and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Now, redemption, we've probably mentioned this before. You've probably heard it before. To redeem something means to buy it back. Okay, redemption means to buy something back. So a redeemer would come to live the life that none of us could, to take our sin on himself on the cross, therefore satisfying God's perfect justice and wrath. And then this redeemer would rise again, killing the bondage of death in the process. By his sinless life, by his death and by his resurrection, his righteousness is then applied to our account. You can now stand before God as if you've never sinned. That's justification. You can now be unafraid of his wrath because Christ has bore it for you. Instead, you can run to him into his embrace where he invites you into a personal relationship with him because your sin doesn't separate him anymore. If you look back at the first couple verses, that was the problem, right? They were far from God because of their sin. God hadn't moved, but their sin had moved them further and further. It looked as though God was far away, but the sin was the problem. Now a redeemer comes to make it possible for us to be reconciled and embraced by the same righteous and just God. That's redemption. But notice something in verse 20. I think this is significant too. Who is the Redeemer coming to? A Redeemer's coming. That is fantastic news. That is great. But if it's only for one person, that's not good news for everybody else, is it? Look at what it says. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Who turn from transgression. There is no hiding place on Judgment Day. Verse 18 reminds us that justice will be served to the coastlands, it said. Uh, That means completely from the center of the continent to the coastlands, everywhere. Justice will be served. It's coming completely all the earth. So then what is required? Well, that's, that question has been answered for us. What's required for someone that they might have this kind of hope? 
it comes, the Redeemer comes to those who turn from transgression. Another word for turn from transgression or turn from sin is just the same thing that that John the Baptist and Jesus came preaching, repent. Simple word, biblical word, repent. That's what it means to turn from transgression. Repent literally means to turn from sin, to change your mind about sin. So you used to enjoy this thing. Kids, you used to enjoy sneaking that snack when you knew you weren't supposed to. Imagine that. Maybe adults, you're not supposed to. You used to enjoy that. You used to like it, but now when you do that, it doesn't taste as good anymore. Because you know it's wrong. Because the Spirit of God is saying, no, 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 no. Turn from your sin. There's a Redeemer waiting. Turn from your sin. So, what's the recipe? So I said, abandon hope. That's, that's a weird thing for a preacher to say, right? Abandon hope. But abandon hope in everything on the horizontal level that's, that, that you're turning to instead of the Redeemer. Turn away from those things. Turn away from the sin of thinking that another person is going to make you happy. Turn away from the sin of thinking that, that the thing you're going to open in the box on Christmas is going to really fulfill you. Turn away from the sin of self-sufficiency, of arrogance, of pride that would think that we don't need a Savior. We're not that bad. Turn from that sin. When all other hope is gone, right, those horizontal hopes, when they're gone, turn away from them. But that's not the full story, is it? You can turn away from them, but then where do you go? You have to turn away from them and towards the Savior, towards the Redeemer, That's how we obtain this hope. See, a redeemer is the only alternative to God's wrath. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. Because the redeemer was born. He was born for those who turn from their transgression. Look at verse 21. This explains why God would do something like this. Why has God done this? Why would he send a redeemer to people that obviously did not deserve it? Verse 21 wraps it up. I'll just simplify it like this. Because he is faithful. Notice what he says. As for me, this is my covenant with him, with them. That's why God did it. Because he promised that he would. And he's faithful. He keeps his promises. He sends, he makes the covenant. He sends his spirit and then he gives his words, words that are going to be in the, the mouths of his people for generations and generations. God would see that this happened because he is faithful. There's a song that we sing here uh, that I want to close with one of the lines from it. It's the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's the Sovereign Grace version that has a little bit of different wording to it. And here's here's what I want to quote. It's the beauty of this idea of justice, God's justice and God's mercy and how they come together at the cross, which was Jesus, which was what Jesus was born for. Here, here's the line. Turn your eyes to the hillside, talking about Calvary. Turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embrace. There the Son of God gave his life for us And our measureless debt was erased. This is what the Redeemer has come to do. 
He's come to erase the debt of all those who turn from transgression. And so, Jesus Christ is the hope of Christmas, and Christmas is hope. As we continue reflecting on passages that turn our eyes to the Savior, I pray and hope that this Christmas season, more than ever before, we wouldn't just tell the story until the manger and then stop. But instead, we would tell the story, and including the manger, and then keep going to understand what he came and was born to do. And I'll give a short plug for the kids' Christmas program next Sunday night. It's really going to do that. It's going to explore not just the birth, but what Jesus was born to do. I encourage you to come out for that. Let's pray together. Lord, this Christmas is such a great time to, to really grab hold of what you're telling us about Jesus. Because we're going to see family and friends who, who, who maybe they know about Christmas. They know what it's about. Uh, they know why, you know, there's a baby in a manger in the nativity scenes. But maybe they don't really know what it means to have a redeemer for them. Taking their sin for them and presenting them righteous before God. Lord, if we do have the good news, may we go and share it this Christmas season. It's better than anything we could wrap up under a tree. It's this message of hope of a Redeemer who has come. You have done it. You have seen the wickedness, the desperation of mankind, and you took it on yourself to change history. And you've done it in Christ. And so not only do we thank you for his birth, of God taking on flesh and dwelling among us, but we thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you for the eternal life that we have when we believe in him. And so, Lord, I pray that the message of Christmas, the message of hope would, would spring faith out of it. Lord, so that you might be praised and glorified. Through Jesus, in his name we pray. Amen.